So as we sit now in meditation, we should work to practice and cultivate the mind and heart, bringing our mindfulness or sati to our meditation object or kamatana and endeavoring to not allow the mind to stray into the past or the future, but to remain present in the moment now. As we chant each evening, praising the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, developing metta, thinking and recollecting all of these wholesome qualities, then if we maintain mindfulness with those chants and with their meaning, the wild and restless chitta or mind will calm down and grow quiet. As we practice this regularly, the chitta will grow skilled at becoming calm. It will move towards peace quickly and become adept at finding samadhi or quietude easily and consistently. So we need to develop a regular kamatana or meditation object throughout our days and in our practice. Perhaps we might recite the meditation word Budo with the inhale and exhale with the breath. On the inhale, reciting Bhut. On the exhale, reciting Do. We might contemplate the body as elements and see it as emptiness or as empty of self. We might contemplate death, repeating to ourselves the sentence that life is uncertain, death is certain, every life ends in death. Repeating it, life is uncertain, death is certain, every life ends in death. And if we think like this repeatedly, the mind grows calm and enters into some stage of samadhi, either, either kanika, momentary concentration, or upachara, neighborhood concentration. The mind grows light and buoyant, as does the body, and it gives rise, this death contemplation, to a perception of the changing nature of all conditioned phenomena, or anicca sanya. Anicca sanya is not a wisdom practice yet. Rather, this perception of impermanence manifests as a samatha technique or path, a path to calm the mind. However, even though it is initially aimed at calming the mind, it still involves the chitta becoming empty, the mind becoming empty of all mental impressions temporarily, as this is what samadhi does. The mind that grows calm in, descends into samadhi releases all of its other preoccupations and mental impressions for a time 
if only temporarily. It's not quite wisdom, though it is near to wisdom. This emptiness of samadhi may, or this calm of samadhi, may be compared to a rock placed on a patch of grass. For a time, as long as the rock remains on that grass, the grass will not grow. However, it's still alive. Its roots still are vital underneath that rock. And as soon as the stone is removed, the grass begins to grow once again. Similarly, when our mind descends into samadhi, lucid calm, the mental impressions and hindrances go into abeyance, become quiet. But as the defilements are still there deep in the mind, as soon as our sense of samadhi disappears, then the kilesas, the defilements, will reassert themselves and unwholesome mental states will once again have a chance to come forth. So we may hear about these various meditation objects, the breath, contemplation of death, and so on, and doubt may arise. Can one really see Dhamma break through to liberation using Marnanusati, contemplation of death? If one contemplates or brings to mind the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha as their main object, will this be sufficient for them to see Dhamma? These doubts can arise, but there's no need to become calm or to become doubtful of such things. Each of these objects and all of these meditation objects we are looking to and speaking of at the moment are for the sake of bringing the mind to samadhi or lucid quiet. If a meditation object works to bring the mind to such a state of lucid quiet, then that calm that the meditation object creates can be used to contemplate and give rise to wisdom, which is the essential element in seeing Dhamma and attaining awakening. This breakthrough is predicated on conditions which we've put and created in our formal practice and in our lives. Any realization we have is based on the effort that we've put forward and put forth in the past. There's no need to think too much or fixate on the results of our practice, when, where, and how we will see Dhamma, if we'll, we will attain. Rather, we dedicate ourselves to putting forth effort and cultivating the conditions for such realization in as sincere and consistent a way as possible. And this is enough. The results will appear of their own accord.
It's like planting and nourishing a tree. As the gardener, we do our duties to that tree. We water it, apply or give it fertilizer, protect it from pests. However, we don't then try to rush it or focus too much on it giving fruit, as this will do no good. We do our duties, and then the fruit comes of its own accord in its own time. We do our duty, and the tree does its. Eventually, the fruit will come, and we can partake of it. And we can know that this fruit came due to the conditions we'd put in earlier. It sometimes takes time, perhaps a year, more, but what we reap in the future, we can be sure came to us based on what we are creating in terms of causes and conditions at the moment. Sometimes it's easy to perceive this cause and effect relationship. We can look 10 or 15 years in our past and see how our practice then has given rise to wholesome states in ourselves now. Similarly, we may put in causes now, put forth effort in our practice, and in five or 10 years, we may see an increase in wisdom and wholesome states which we can easily connect to the causes which we are creating now. So this effort which we put forward, which we put forth and which gives rise to such blessings is something to think of and cultivate regularly. We can reflect that this ordination we've taken is no easy thing to come by. A monk or novice is one who sees the danger in samsara the endless round of rebirths. Similarly, Upasikas, the laity who hold eight precepts, also are ones who on some level have seen the danger and limitations of rebirth and the cycle of rebirth. To come across such an opportunity is difficult and to maintain it in our lives is also hard. The Buddha came to the human realm to teach the Dhamma for good reason. He did not have his final birth as a deva or angelic being, nor as a Brahma, because he realized that the realm of humanity, of human, and such a rebirth constituted a middle realm in which one has the ability to see suffering clearly due to its limitations and pain, but also the mental faculties to understand and eventually transcend it. This is why he came and taught in our realm. The realm of the devas in many ways is too pleasant. One has no 
decay of the body, no need to search for the basic requisites of life. And so angelic beings are frequently unable to see clearly suffering or its nature. If we cannot see suffering, then growing disenchanted and dispassionate towards the world around us is exceedingly difficult. However, in the human realm, suffering is apparent everywhere. The body changes, it decays. All the things we have gathered go to their own disappearance and cease are taken from us. And we can also ask why the Buddha did not teach his Dhamma to the Brahmas or in the Brahma realms. This is because the Brahma realms are occupied by beings whose minds are extremely peaceful and endowed with samadhi. They are attached to that happiness. And so seeing suffering is even harder. Although the Buddha did teach to some Brahmas, he was not reborn in that realm for this reason. However, we are given this precious opportunity as monastics or even as lay people where we may practice sincerely to see suffering in the human form. If we are a lay person but dedicate ourselves to meditation, this still constitutes the holy life, the brahmacharya in one sense, in that it is a life dedicated to spiritual goals. In either case, the monk or the layperson will meditate to make the mind quiet and calm. And from such a basis of stability in the mind, seeing the truth or Dhamma becomes easy. However, if we are unable still to make such a breakthrough, it is because we haven't yet created the spiritual qualities or foundations necessary, the paramitas. Anya Kondanya, the first disciple or the first awakened disciple of the Buddha who attained to the stage of stream entry upon the Buddha's first discourse, had a great deal of paramita coming into his life. And not just that, but as a child and from a young age, he further developed that paramita at every opportunity. It wasn't that he came into the world with great spiritual faculties and then allowed himself to grow lax, eating and sleeping well. Rather, even as a young man, he gave up his great fortune and went forth in order to practice meditation. And although due to those he initially followed, he was only able to cultivate states of samadhi or calm rather than insight through wisdom, which was the domain or the quality which the Buddha's teachings allowed him to access. He still was able to, through those many years of practice, develop extremely refined states of calm 
which prepared and primed his mind to hear and understand the Dhamma that the Buddha taught. So we also must put forth effort. As we've ordained, we should attend morning chanting, evening chanting. We should dedicate ourselves to the practice of samadhi. We should contemplate everything in our lives and in the world as Dhamma. Mountains, the forest, everything, even the ocean. One might ask how one would contemplate the ocean in a Dhammic sense. In the suttas, the Buddha compares the ocean and its volume of water to the volume of tears which we have shed on our wanderings through samsara. This is a profound reflection. We can think of how much water or tears one sheds in a single life, and it might just be one glass. However, by pointing to the ocean as the amount that we've shed through our endless wanderings, the Buddha illustrates clearly how much suffering we have endured, not just one lifetime of suffering, one glassful of tears, but rather an eternity, an ocean of tears. The Buddha saw clearly this suffering of all beings, and so he dedicated himself to the practice so he might teach and help those still mired in suffering. We have profound merit to have encountered this teaching. The Buddha already planted the fruit and the trees which we might partake of. He laid out the path of practice. All we have to do is walk to the orchard. All we have to do is dedicate ourselves to the path. If we do so, then realization will come. We will see the Dhamma. We can take this lesson and this assurance from being near various teachers and Kruba Ajans. I myself was near Ajahn Chah and realized that he was certainly an enlightened being. And from this certainty emerged an even stronger dedication to practice and faith that the goal, Nibbana, truly exists, that liberation and an ultimate or transcendent reality is a reality, is available to us. Similarly, such faith makes us understand that our lives need a goal, that they deserve and we deserve to dedicate ourselves to the highest of all things, spiritual awakening. We understand that our coming here, our encountering these teachings and ordaining are not things that have simply happened by chance. Rather, they are things that have come to be because of previous conditions we've laid and created. Many foreigners have come here from distant countries and they have come because they created 
those causes and conditions in the past. It's not an accident. Recollecting the goodness we've done to give rise to these fortuitous conditions, we apply ourselves and the mind develops from that of a human to that of a beautiful being, a Kalyanachon, and eventually to that of a Deva or a heavenly being. The mind develops and brightens. Once it's bright, then we can contemplate the body as elements, see it as empty. We can cut the defilements and see the Dhamma. If contemplating in this way is too much, or if the mind grows tired, then we bring the mind and the attention back to a calming meditation object and let the mind rest in samadhi. The mind is a lot like a car. It needs fuel. If we just drive and never refuel, then the car will break down. And similarly, if we only contemplate and never bring the mind to calm, then it also will grow tired. Faith is one of the most important sorts of fuel, sata, and can, especially in the beginning, be an important cause and support in our practice. It's one of the bala, the five powers. And when full and strong is enough to propel our practice and eventually to help us see the Dhamma. So on this day, June 30th, 2020, I want to encourage all of you to dedicate yourselves to the practice and to realization. And now we'll have a translation of the talk. <laughs> 